Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in civil conversation. You'll get more of it in After the Fact, a podcast from the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts, pewtrust.org slash after the fact. I'm Arthur Brooks, and this is the Arthur Brooks Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is the last episode in our series on the art of disagreement. But if this happens to be the first time you're listening, welcome to the podcast. In this podcast, I focus on disagreement. And you, you might be surprised to learn that I think that disagreement is great. It's good for the country. It's good for all of us. But the problem is not that we disagree too much. It's that we don't do it well enough. So this is a podcast about not less disagreement, but about better disagreement. The very first episode was about disagreement and polarization within families and among friends, how bad it can get and what we can do about it. Over the course of the series, we've covered moral outrage on social media, and I did an entire episode on contempt. I had a long and great conversation with John Gottman about contempt in our personal relationships and in our society more generally. In an episode called Tell Me a Story, we heard about how we can use stories more effectively to persuade, inspire, and unify other people. Kathy Eden, a sociologist and author of a lot of books on poverty, told me how she changes people's minds with stories she discovers as part of her research. Numbers alone, they don't evoke our, our empathy or our understanding. They don't complicate our scripts. That's what stories do, right? They complicate our scripts. And and a well-told story almost always has the effect of evoking the there but for the grace of God go I within the listener. Another great story and conversation I had on this show was with Hawk Newsom, who told me about a time when he shared his stage with his political opponent. I am an American. And the beauty of America is that when you see something broke in your country, you can mobilize to fix it. And what happened after he did that? The same people who were booing me were coming up hugging me. The same people who I wanted to hit. I was now holding their children. Like, you you know, taking pictures with their children. (laughs) Like... And on that episode, I also talked to someone I personally shared a stage with, John Powell, who leads the University of California Berkeley Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. As long as you think of people as other, even at an unconscious level, it means you're not going to fully afford them. And what people need in some respects, as much if not more than just another dollar bill, is they need respect. You're going to hear from John again on this episode, because we also talked about the topic of today's show. You see, there's one question left, 
And that question is, should we disagree on everything? If disagreement is good, should we have really no points of agreement and everything should be mutual disagreement? Or is there something that we do have to agree on? Well, I think there is. This episode is about what we need to agree on. This is a show about moral consensus. When there's a moral consensus, then you can disagree about how to get to that consensus. And that's the basis of the best kind of disagreement, where we're competing with each other for the same moral goal. That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's go back to John Powell. John, one of the things that I've noticed in my career is that, you know, people might want to have discussions with others with whom they disagree, but they're afraid to. And the main reason that they're afraid to is because people on their own side might think less of them. Some people are actually afraid to be seen with those with whom they disagree, right? I definitely think that can be a cost. I mean, I was talking to someone recently who's, in a sense, trying to reach across the aisle, and they were basically saying, I have to think about how that will look to my posse. If people see me with you, you know, it could be suspect. So let me check before I <laughs> before I uh, go out to dinner with you. So I do think there's um, sometimes a price to pay, but I think there's a bigger price to pay when people don't do it. It never occurred to you that it would be weird or somebody would look askance at you because you're hanging out with the guy who runs the American Enterprise Institute, right? Yeah. I mean, although, you know, in all, in all candor, I think I tell you, Arthur, that uh, we have this big conference every two years and I raise your name. It's like, why don't we bring Arthur Brooks out here? And, and it's like, silence. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> have you read Arthur Brooks? I, yes, I read him. I, he doesn't agree with us on A, B, C, D. And I say, I'm aware of that. But, you know, he's a very thoughtful person. You know, he's not what I call an ideologue. He's someone who thinks about things. He looks at the facts. He has a position that's different than ours on some things. But I think his end goal in terms of trying to make the world a better place, trying to reduce poverty, we share. And we can disagree and we can argue and we can learn from each other about are there different approaches we should consider. But I made it clear, because we do this every two years, that okay, I'm giving the staff a lot of leeway and I'm not going to press them where now, but I'm going to press them in the future because I said this is what we're about. And it's real. It's not just uh, words. So if we can't bridge with people like Arthur or others, who can we bridge with? One of the things that I've always found very beautiful about the way that you see these issues, and in point of fact, what really drew me to you in the first place, is that you're most interested in the ends, and you're very open to different means to get to those ends. But it seems to me that the conversation we're having in America today is more about means, and we're not finding a moral consensus, which are the ends of what we're doing, right? I think that's right, and I think even more so, we tend to demonize people who think differently than us. You know, it's like, without even spending time to say, how did you get there? You know, what you know, what did you have for breakfast? Do you have children? You know, it's interesting, President Obama, when he was running, and he was not running well along a certain constituency, and one of the things that tipped it was his talking about children, talking about his children. And people say, hmm, I think he actually loves his children. So I think that there's... We, we make caricatures of each other. And I think in doing so, we actually cut ourselves not just off from each other, but cut ourselves off from ourselves. So how do we navigate sincere differences that we have in policy? So, so I'll give you an example, John. You and I share a strong interest in alleviating poverty in this country. Furthermore, you and I share the view that it's not good enough just to help people who are poor. We need to 
to need people who are poor as a society. That's our moral obligation. And those ideas are kind of what bonded us together in the first place, I think. But we're going to have differences on policies. I mean, we have differences on the degree to which the government should redistribute resources or how they should redistribute resources. I mean, you and I are going to have real strong disagreements along these lines. How do we keep those means from destroying the ability of people to share common and important ends? Well, I think a lot of times ideas, as important as they are, are proxies for other things. I mean, one of the things about you, Arthur, is obviously very smart. You think about things a lot, but you're also empirical. So if if the facts don't work, I guess it's like, okay, I thought that worked, but it's not lining up. But a lot of people, if they have an idea, the facts don't matter. I believe this is like, well, all indication is it's not working out that way. Then give me some different facts. (laughs) I don't like Hmm. those facts. So that's part of it is that people... In all of us, even as we are full of real strong commitment, it seems to me we have to also have a certain amount of humility that we might be wrong or it might be right in one circumstances. It doesn't mean it's going to be right forever. And so part of respecting someone is at least to listen and to say, even if you don't agree with me or even if I don't agree with you, I have to at least pause and say, hmm, let me think about that. Are there certain circumstances where that might work? And I don't know. As much as I feel strongly about things, there's things I don't know. There's some things that are not, from my perspective, negotiable, like everyone is of human value. So some people are going to say, no, those people are not, whether they are Muslims or Christians or Jews or blacks or gays. But to me, it's like that's a very strong thing. The other thing is that we don't have to agree on everything. I know of no one that, even in terms of partnerships, where people agree on everything. So part of what makes life interesting is to hold some of those tensions, but hold them with respect. You know, you don't kick someone out of the family because I like soccer and they like football. So, okay, okay, go live someplace else. This is a soccer house. We don't do that among other things. So I think it's easy to hate people in the abstract. When we're faced with real people, with real contact, then the complexity come in. People are not flat. They don't have one idea, whether it's about abortion of choice, whether it's about the market. We're complex creatures. So there's a lot of possibility to come together. We both believe in a radical equality of human dignity. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of different ways and a lot of different ideas such that people will have a sense of the equality of their own dignity and that we can live it such that we see each other in this way. It seems like what a lot of people do these days is that the policies that they have to serve others or to try to make a better a better society are substituting for those kinds of values themselves. So if somebody says capitalism or economic growth or welfare programs or something, that, that kind of becomes an end in itself, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm agnostic about a lot of things. I'm certainly agnostic about a lot of means as long as they afford human dignity and some possibility of doing better. You know, I teach graduate students and I say, if you do a PhD thesis or a research paper and nothing in your research surprises you, you've been having probably haven't looked deep enough or haven't been honest. Because when we look at things in real terms, there are complexities that we couldn't have anticipated. So I say to have ideals but not to be an ideologue, to have values but to be pragmatic and based in how life actually unfolds. I teach that. I believe that. It seems to me we're losing that now. People are not so much interested in ideas. People are interested in winning. And it doesn't even matter what the game is. It's like part of my feeling good is to beat somebody down. And, you know, there's a long history. People have been mistreated, so that has to be taken seriously. But again, people are complex. 
I was talking to someone yesterday, and they were saying, they were talking about uh, Reverend Martin Luther King. They were saying, well, you know, he did have clay feet. You know, he was a womanizer. And I wonder if that detracts from what an incredible person he was. And I said, in my mind, it adds to what an incredible person he is. You know, one approach is that God had to incarnate, for those who ascribe to that, to take on clay feet. It's actually more impressive for someone who's not perfect, who's someone who has warts and pimples, to struggle with that and do something wonderful, rather than someone who doesn't have issue with that. So I think we need to have a certain generosity, not indulgence, but a certain generosity of, yes, people make mistakes, but they can grow. We're going to take a break so I can tell you about our sponsor. We'll be back in a minute. We're back talking about moral consensus. We've talked about the fact that we need a common end goal in order to disagree better, to have a better competition of ideas and that sort of thing. All this sounds good in theory, but how do we actually put this into practice? Well, my next guest, John Tomasi, is a professor of political science at Brown University. He's also the director of the Political Theory Project, an interdisciplinary research center at Brown. I asked John to come on the podcast to talk about his background as a political philosopher and how his students are living out the moral consensus every day on Brown's campus. John Tomasi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Arthur. Lovely to be here. You're a professor of political science and philosophy at Brown. Tell me about your work and your expertise and how you wound up where you are today. Well, I'm a fusionist. I think by disposition as well as by professional acclamation, I suppose, I, I'm interested in the the idea that the, the truth has multifaceted, that anytime we have really strong beliefs about things, we can learn things by studying people who disagree with us. Our ideas get stronger and richer and more powerful by the more we contest them and the more we challenge them for ourselves. And I do that in my research. I found that to be true in my own attempt to become a scholar. But I also really feel that as a teacher that when you give students a chance to think for themselves and challenge them not to be complacent, that's when really the exciting things happen. What is a fusionist? You just said fusionist. So just define that more specifically. Well, for example, the, the book that I'm most well known for is called Free Market Fairness. And in Free Market Fairness, I try to combine political philosophies of the left, most notably the philosopher John Rawls, who was the great thinker of social justice in our time, with uh, free market ideas or Friedrich Hayek. And I try to combine the ideas of fairness from Rawls with the importance of free markets from Hayek. And usually people think of Hayek and Rawls as being in, in opposing camps with nothing, nothing in common. And I try to show that there's a lot in common beneath the superficial differences. There's uh, some very deep commonalities that both of those thinkers were, were reaching toward in their very different approaches. And when you talk about yourself as a fusionist, give me an example of ways that you've found personally common ground between your own personal political philosophy, your own ideology, and that of people that would commonly be thought of as being orthogonal to yours. So my wife is a hardcore lefty authoritarian, as I call her, though she wouldn't like hearing that on the podcast. But um, so she and I typically go, whenever, <laughs> when we go to vote, we typically um, cancel each other out right down the ballot, but then we drive home together and talk about why we voted the way we did. So that's probably, that's probably the most, in the most intimate sense, I live and love someone who um, sees the world very differently than I do politically. So define your own ideology to me. I've heard you call yourself a bleeding heart libertarian. What, what's that all about? 
other people call me that, but <laughs> um, I'm starting to adopt it. I, I, I'm, I think of myself as a classical liberal, and I am really struck by the historical fact that classical liberalism begins with people who are extremely concerned about difference. They're concerned about poverty. They're concerned about opportunity for all members of society. Thinking, for example, of um, Adam Smith, probably mo most notably, that that's where the classical liberal idea began, and it began very closely tied to concerns for the poor and concerns for the disadvantaged. And I think that the classical liberal tradition kind of lost that through the years. And in the rhetoric, at least, people who advocated free markets stopped attending also to these concerns that we would now call social justice concerns. And so I'm a classical liberal who wants to point us back, I think, to our healthier origins. As you probably know, Adam Smith in his time was criticized for talking too much about the poor. And I think it would be a lovely thing if people who advocate limited government, personal responsibility, spontaneous order, economic freedom, if we could be criticized yet again for talking too much about how those, those institutions help the poorest people in society. I think that would be a, a really lovely state of affairs if we could create that uh, yet again. It is true. To think back to the author of The Wealth of Nations, uh, who was truly a bleeding heart. I mean, he taught his most important book, of course, was The Theory of Moral Sentiments. He considered it to be a much greater book than The, than the Wealth of Nations, and he returned to it for the rest of his life to talk about our moral right to earn freedom. It's, it's extraordinary to the extent that we, on the so-called political right, have forgotten that, isn't it? I think, I think it is. I think part of it is that in the middle of the last century, the strongest defenders of free markets were, were pretty strict libertarians. Um, people like Maria Rothbard, um, maybe Ayn Rand. And there are many, I think, really important insights in, in those thinkers' work. But there was also kind of a maybe understandably bitter opposition to socialism in, in their work that started swamping out the kind of intermediate concerns about compassion and about social justice. And as social justice as a concept got captured by more extreme elements, the people on the free market side were sort of all too willing to let that concept go and to start attacking and rejecting social justice itself. The origins of classical liberalism really were about compassion. And yet we went through a long period, I think, during the Cold War, when defenders of limited government and economic freedom and personal responsibility couldn't use words like social justice without being in danger of flip, being flipped to the other side. So you're the founder and you're the director of the Political Theory Project at Brown, and that's an interdisciplinary research center at Brown. Tell me about PTP. Our mission is to investigate the ideas and institutions that might make societies more free, more prosperous, and more fair. And not just one of those things, not just more free or more fair, or more pro but all, all three of those things together. And each of those concepts, I think, sort of tracks an ideological current. And our idea is that by trying to focus on achieving all three of those goals at once, we automatically bring ideologies into, into, into interplay with each other. And so one of the things that's distinctive about the PTP is that we have a foundational commitment to intellectual pluralism and ideological pluralism. So we really think that if we're going to make progress in understanding how we can make our societies more free and more prosperous and more fair, we need to bring people together who see the world very differently and uh, you know create a, an environment where people are constantly upsetting one another in the sense of upsetting our ideologies and challenging us to think in, in deeper, deeper, stronger ways. One of the things that I've read about your program, and I've heard people speak about as well, is that when you have these conversations at the Political Theory Project, you tend to discover that people have moral commonalities they didn't know they had. Tell me about that. 
one of our signature activities is called the Janus Lecture Series. And for the Janus Lecture Series, we bring in prominent speakers with very different ideological perspectives to debate controversial topics. So, for example, we had Noam Chomsky on Israel, and we paired him with Ambassador Dennis Ross, who brought in some counterpoints. So we bring in these big-time speakers who see the world really differently, but not simply to have the students watch a debate, but rather to give the students a chance to see that when serious people get together to have these conversations, things don't come out the way you think they're going to come out. And a more specific example, if, if I may, we had one this year that was a really interesting one. On It was called Socialism Now? Question mark. And we had um, John Romer from Yale University, who's a very, very prominent academic defender of socialism, with Andre Schleifer from Harvard, who's been very involved with uh, the transitioning economies, mainly from the Soviet, former Soviet Union, to market societies. And Andre Schleifer is a big pro-market person and an anti-socialist. And the students in advance, we have this honor society of students who read, read both of their books and, and um, were pretty loaded up on their work before they came. Our students were so interested because they, they, they're a diverse group themselves. The students in our honor society, some are socialists, some are free market people. There are a whole variety of different, different ideologies they hold. But the people who were big fans of John Romer and socialism were pretty surprised to discover John Romer, this very prominent socialist, seems to accept the necessity of markets in a whole variety of areas. So they were surprised to find that their socialist hero agreed with the right, let's call it, that markets are really important. At the same time, some of the market, the pro-market people were surprised to hear from Andre Schleifer just how difficult it is to get a market up and running in a society where it hasn't been part of the culture. So the pro-market people were sort of just surprised by their hero to find that markets were actually much more difficult and a challenging thing to set up than they might have thought of otherwise. And that's the kind of thing we're after. We want to try to give students a sense for how complex these ideas these ideas are. They're merely an ideologue. You're not really anything. If you just have, a, have some conclusions without a deep understanding of what the cutting-edge work is being done on these, on these areas is, you're not really going to be a, a serious player in the world. And if you want to be a serious player, though, you can come to our events, you can dive into the readings that we set up for kids, and you can you can have a chance to become a, a really sophisticated thinker about these things. When, when you're having these big debates, which is really fascinating, you're bringing people together who disagree, people who apparently have nothing in common, and it turns out they do have some moral commonalities. What kind of sophistication has this given you about sort of the, the state of nature? If you were to say, here's one thing that we basically all believe, that we can coalesce around, that we could all fight for, a moral good that everybody shares, left, right, and center, what would it be? What I've been most struck by was the drive that students have, this incredible yearning they have to think about political ideologies in new ways. And that's been a consistent observation on my part through my 20 years at Brown, that even at a university, which is widely perceived as being one-sided being more left-wing, a left-wing university rather than a, certainly a right-wing university, that at Brown, there's this intense interest on the part of young people to not merely defend inherited ideologies, but to create new things and find new ways of thinking. I don't mean to say that I never meet students at Brown who are mere defenders of inherited ideologies. There are warriors in the worst sense of that term. But what I really see, what I see most consistently and what really encourages me the most is this, this genuine hope for something more, that they're going to have a chance to have a great adventure where the outcome's not decided yet. It won't be decided maybe until much later in their lives, even in their own minds. 
that, that that sense of adventure, that sense of a quest for something different, that's a commonality. There's something really deep, I think, in young people that they want more. They want to understand more. And there's a flexibility and an dissatisfaction with the status quo and including the status quo ideological paradigms that I find really encouraging. Hmm. Do you think that the conflict between ideological groups comes because people don't understand that people on the other side actually share their objective to lift people up and to help others? You know, there's a lot of social science on this and a lot of um, social psychology that suggests that we can't escape, we don't easily escape our evolutionary backgrounds. One of the things we try to do is point out to people this phenomenon like confirmation bias and try to let them see ways in which their brains may be tricking them into not being as open-minded as they might want to be if they're trying to reach that higher ideal. You know, we tend to, we tend to cheer for sides. And, you know, as, you, as we all keep hearing these days, people are in their echo chambers with their Facebook friends who share the same ideologies as they do, blocking the ones who don't put up the right kind of news links to articles they like. And there's just a lot of that that kind of um, infects and affects the ideal. It affects that ideal of trying to think beyond the inherited ideologies and thinking in new ways. So when I read your work, you know, it reminds me sort of the opposite of those shows that when you and I were kids, sort of those daredevil shows on television, they would say, don't try this at, at home, kids. You're basically, you know, go out and try this at home, kids. These experiments in, in, in getting along, these experiments in moral consensus, how can people replicate those experiments in their everyday life, not just on campus, in the workplace? How can they replicate your experiments around the Thanksgiving table this coming year? I think a lot of it begins with framing. And I think if you frame the issues a certain way, then they come out in certain ways. And I think that if you frame issues, we, we spent a, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I want to frame this idea about the PTP being, being a place that fosters diversity at Brown. If you simply say we want to foster diversity at a place like Brown, they're going to assume you have an ideology and you're trying to sneak in an ideology that they don't want around this, around this university. But if you, you frame it differently, the way that I actually think of it, in terms of creating a places where students can become leaders, where students can come to think new thoughts, where students have opportunities to think in new ways— then things come out differently. Or at least there's a good chance they might come out differently. So too, I think around a dinner table or a Thanksgiving table, you know, what's the issue? Is it, do you agree with me that Donald Trump is a terrible person or do you think he's a wonderful shaking up the status quo? If you start it that way, you're probably going to get pretty predictable results. But if you can move people to thinking about the more basic questions, to think about, you know, where society should be going, what kinds of things might make our, our world a better place? Not just what do you see out there right now, on the existing menu that you do like or you don't like. But just in general, if you could create a new menu or create new dishes, what dishes would you like us to create? What are the principles that you think make the world a better place? Not so much, do you like Nancy Pelosi or do you like Paul Ryan or something like that? So in some sense, the more abstracted questions, I think are a healthy way to get things going. Before we end the show, I want to thank everyone for listening, for subscribing, and for reviewing the podcast. And a lot of you emailed, too, with your thoughts on the show and your stories, especially your stories about contempt and disagreement. I want to play out two of those stories. The first comes from our listener, Matthew Lichtash. He's witnessed firsthand the toll that contempt can take on relationships. So I listened to your podcast with Ezra Klein a couple of weeks ago, and one thing really stuck out to me, which is how you described what it feels like to be treated with contempt, specifically how it can feel like getting punched in the face. 
And I can definitely speak from experience in that I have a friend who, you know, I used to get into political scuffles with him on Facebook Messenger. They started getting more and more heated and eventually I could see clear signs of contempt. You know, you're a bad person. How could you think this? Things like that. And it really has stuck with me ever since that happened, which was over 10 years ago. And something similar happened with my family, which was that I have two family members who have known each other almost their whole lives. And we've always talked about politics, but there is something about the last five years or so that there's been a marked shift in the tone and the amount of contempt that I've seen between the two, but more specifically from one side more than the other. All of a sudden, seemingly, one of those family members would say things like, you're morally bankrupt, how could you think this? Only an, a racist, bad person would think this. You know, you hate women, things like that. And eventually it led to a breaking off of their relationship. And again, they've known each other for over 40 years. It's been a real sour spot for me and my family as now we can no longer do things together. And it's really created a sharp divide. Matthew, thanks for sending that to us. The second story comes from Brooke Landecker. She's a recent college graduate of Washington University in St. Louis. This is what I believe to be a pretty unusual story of productive disagreement. So in college, I was the president of the Feminist Club, and I became friends with Mark, who was a member of the Pro-Life Club. He eventually became president. We graduated, became roommates, and are actually working for the same company and are very, very close friends. The Pro-Life Club at my college campus was pretty different than other pro-life organizations I had encountered before. They merely asked the question, should abortion remain legal, and invite people to come discuss it with them. They're really genuinely curious about other people's views, and as a result, people become curious about their views. And though I never really changed my view on the moral permissibility of abortion, chatting with them, testing my ideas, seeing where I might be wrong, made me view the entire debate very, very differently. For the first time, I saw sincerity on the opposing side, where before I had only seen vitriol, or to use another term, contempt. This was all at Washington University in St. Louis, and even at a school that has a good amount of ideological diversity, the pro-life group was still confronted by a number of pro-choice students who had harassed them. These incidents were very few and far between, but they were still pretty hurtful nonetheless. When these people came up to the table, I would try to defuse the situation, oddly using my status as a pro-choice person to defend the pro-life group to other pro-choice people. My friendship with Mark is much, much more than our disagreement over abortion and its legality. However, I do think that we are actually closer because of how we are able to disagree over sensitive issues like abortion. I think we both see our disagreements as opportunities to learn and see clearly a different but equally full point of view. I am part of the reason he is a feminist and even joined my feminist club, and he is part of the reason I am far more empathetic when arguing with those I disagree with, which has led me to change a number of my views. I never feel contemptuous of Mark because he is always sincere in his beliefs. His views are not born out of any desire to control women or the choices they make, but rather a profound empathy for all he views as human. 
It is that empathy and the consistency of his views based on those principles beyond the issue of abortion that prove just how sincere he is, and I cannot fault him for wanting to, from his standpoint, literally save lives and therefore can feel no contempt. That's it from us. Our team at AEI is Cece Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, our producer is Gautam Shrikashan, who also composed our theme music. Golda Arthur is senior producer. And Nishat Kurwa is executive producer of audio. If you found a friend you disagree with and you got them to listen to the show, nice work. Write to me and tell me how that went. Email us at arthurbrooksshow at voxmedia.com. And on Twitter, I'm at Arthur Brooks. Thanks for listening. For 70 years, the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trust has researched the data and the facts that promote civil conversation and lead to innovative policy solutions. Now, it's providing some of that civil dialogue in a podcast called After the Fact. In each episode, Pew shares a surprising stat and a story that help illuminate the issues that matter. Listen at pewtrust.org slash afterthefact, or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your favorite programs. Have you seen Vox's new show on Netflix yet? It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15 to 20 minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, that's political correctness. This episode is great. It explores the basic question, what is political correctness? What exactly is it that we're fighting over? And it shows how our understanding of political correctness has changed over time. Who's been involved in shaping our understanding of this big idea? So make sure you check it out by searching for Explained or Vox on Netflix or going straight to netflix.com slash explained. Hello, I'm Ezra Klein, host of The Ezra Klein Show, and I would love if you checked it out. It is a weekly conversation with the people shaping our world, our politics, our culture, people like Tanasi Coates, Hillary Clinton, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jaron Lanier. These are conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Conversations at the intersection of, of technology, of culture, of politics, of governance, and that are hopefully getting at the ideas that are changing our society. So I'd love if you would give the podcast a try. You can find The Ezra Klein Show wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.